Greetings and welcome to the Everything But the Kitchen Sink podcast. This is episode 17, part 3 of the 1980 New Mexico prison riot. This is the final installment. It covers negotiations between inmates and officials that led to the end of the riot. While some of the inmates were bargaining with officials and some were killing fellow inmates, others were breaking out of the institution and surrendering to police. The residents of dorm E1, a minimum security protection unit, had barricaded the entrance to their unit with bunks soon after hearing the initial takeover of dorm E2 directly overhead. Inmates outside of E1 tried to lure the residents out of the unit, but the E1 inmates, fearing for their lives, refused to join the riot. When the rioters attempted to force the residents out of the dorm by setting fire to mattresses at the entrance and throwing tear gas into the unit, the residents fanned back the smoke and gas back out into the corridor, turning back their attackers. Using a three-foot wrench, which had been brought into the unit by an inmate from another living unit, 84 residents of dorm E1 knocked out a barred window and escaped around 7.30 a.m. They surrendered to officers at the end of the south compound. Around 8.30, a group of 20 inmates used a torch to cut through a metal door at the east end of cell block 5 and surrendered to police. Most of the inmates had been residents of cell block 4 and told the officers of the killing they had witnessed in the protective unit. From interviews, the police were able to compile a list of 14 dead inmates. Inmates continued to break out of the prison through any open holes not guarded by rioting inmates. They came out singularly, in groups, often fighting with other inmates to escape. The exodus continued throughout the riot. By Sunday afternoon, barely 100 inmates remained inside the prison. Saturday morning, back at the highway entrance, the crowd swelled to hundreds. When Governor King arrived at the penitentiary at 9.15 a.m., he was surrounded by anxious journalists and inmate relatives. King was able to give them little news. At the same time, negotiators were learning about what was occurring inside. Surrendering inmates were describing a scene of murder and torture inside the penitentiary. And during radio conversations, one inmate threatened to kill the protective cases or snitches housed in cell block 4 if the demands were not met. Quote, all them guys in cell block 4 that you've been using, well, I've got some of them in the sack just in case you don't cooperate. Eyewitnesses that you call the snitches over here, they are going to start getting shanked. As the day progressed, reports of inmates' deaths increased. At 10.42 a.m., a negotiator received a report by radio that two prisoners were dead in cell block 3. At 11.47 a.m., the penitentiary psychologist identified suspected leaders of a group of 15 to 20 inmates thought to be conducting a systematic killing campaign inside. Radio reports from inside seemed to support the accounts. There are a couple of groups of lunatics running around that just want to get into violence, one convict said over the radio. It has been creating problems. Knowledge of inmates being killed did not change the negotiation process. The official strategy continued to be to stall for time and try to talk the convicts into releasing the hostages. 
although correction officers knew that some of the guards were being beaten, stabbed, and sodomized, they clung to the hope that negotiations could at least save the hostages' lives. Negotiators felt that an assault would result in greater loss of life than would be a negotiated, although time-consuming, end to the riot. Inmates began breaking out of the main prison building and surrendering to officials early Saturday. Some of those attempting to escape the violence inside had already been cut or beaten by rioting convicts who had posted themselves at exits. As the number of surrendering inmates increased, so did the number of bone fractures, lacerations, traumatic amputations, and cases of deep shock with which the medical support forces had to contend. Around 1.25 p.m. Saturday, the first patient with a serious drug overdose was turned over to an ambulance crew. From that point on, inmates suffering from overdoses emerged in increasing numbers. By the time the penitentiary was retaken, the medical support team was handling more cases of drug overdoses than any other malady. Around 3.15 p.m. on Saturday, the inmates handed a list of demands to the warden. Some of the demands and answers are as follows. Bring federal officials to the penitentiary to assure no retaliation will occur. We will ask for assistance from the FBI. Reclassify the men held in cell block 3. Security risks will remain inside cell block 3. Improve prison food. We will hire a nutritionist to oversee the food and allow the news media into the prison. These are just to name a few. Although these were the demands reported in the press, the prison psychiatrist claimed afterwards that the first thing the inmates wanted was a pool table in each dorms and more televisions. Around 7.12 p.m., 10 hours after the governor promised a press meeting with inmates, two inmates met face-to-face with a Santa Fe radio commentator and Albuquerque television reporter. The inmates asked that a television camera be brought in, which was promised that it would be allowed in the next day. As a result, the inmates released another hostage. Around 10.45 p.m., two inmates, both members of the Aryan Brotherhood, entered into a face-to-face dialogue with the warden. As a result of this conversation, in anticipation of getting a cameraman inside the prison, a guard who had been beaten just moments before was released bound to a chair. At first, it was proposed that an exchange of hostages for access to reporters would occur on a one-to-one basis. That is, an interview with one reporter for each hostage turned loose. It was proposed to let the reporters inside the fence at the main entrance at the same time the remaining hostages were let out. Yet the plan was canceled around midnight when correction officials determined that the mood of some inmates in the yard was such that the press would be unsafe. Around midnight, a NBC cameraman from L.A. was at the guardhouse with a video recorder and a camera from the network's Albuquerque affiliate. At 12.07, some inmates carried a hostage officer out on a stretcher. They would not release him until the reporter walked inside the prison yard. When the reporter walked inside the compound, they released the injured hostage. Six hostages now remained. 
the cameraman spent about 40 minutes inside the prison talking with and videotaping inmates in the visitor's room of the administration area. Some of the inmates wore masks during the interview, while others showed their faces and gave their names to the reporter. They complained of poor food, harassment by correctional staff, overcrowding, and lack of recreation. The reporter was escorted out of the prison without incident shortly before 1 a.m. I was never threatened. I never saw a gun or a knife, although there were a lot of clubs, the reporter said afterwards. If I had known then what was going on back there, I never would have gone in. At the same time the reporter was inside the prison, inmates were radioing to each other to be wary of wild inmates. Be careful, one said. Take somebody that's armed and ready to fight. There are two groups in there that are going wild. Finally, at 1.07 a.m. Sunday morning, the inmates ended negotiations until the morning. On the morning of Sunday, February 3rd, a corrections officer managed to sneak out of the institution at 7.52 a.m. He was assisted by sympathetic inmates who had dressed him in convict clothes and hid him under a bunk in a cell for several hours. Because of his youth and the fact that few inmates knew him, he easily passed for an inmate and left the institution with a group who surrendered to authorities. With his escape, five hostages remained inside. The escape of inmates caused problems for the hostage leaders. One inmate screamed into the radio asking, quote, What the hell is going on? Where's everybody sneaking out of this place from? Inmates were escaping and surrendering through every unguarded opening in the building. At this time, inmates continued to surrender at a rapid pace. Many of those walking or being dragged into the yard were suffering from serious overdoses of pharmacy drugs. A few of the inmates, possibly under the influence of sniffing solvents, offered violent physical resistance to the medical team and had to be subdued and restrained. As the morning continued, three more hostages were released or escaped. In anticipation for the resumption of negotiations, the inmates released the highest-ranking officer among the hostages. In return, the inmates were given a written agreement that no retribution would be taken against the inmates. At 10.55, an officer escaped out of the rear of the prison with the help of some inmates. An hour later, another was released by the hostage-takers. Two more correction officers remained inside the prison. Now, let's talk about the factions among inmates in the New Mexico prison, because it highlights who escaped and why. Also, it explains who were, quote, in charge. There were three basic ethnic groups operating within the penitentiary during the riot. Hispanic inmates comprised the largest group of 53%. Whites were the second largest faction with 37%. And African Americans were the smallest with 9%. None of the ethnic groups was under complete control or direction of strong leaders. Small bands of inmates of all ethnicities vied for control of the negotiations or joined forces for protection or destructive strength. There was no dominant club or organization continually in control during the insurrection. Some inmates modeled themselves after the Aryan Brotherhood, a nationwide prison gang of neo-Nazis. White Hispanic inmates dominated the population by their numbers, yet there was no single hierarchy among that ethnic group. 
Black inmates organized themselves for self-protection. About a dozen African Americans converged on cell block four early Saturday, and some had rescued several intended victims from the would-be assassins. Around noon Saturday, the black inmates attempted to escape as a group. When they were unable to get past an armed inmate who was guarding an exit, the group moved to a different part of the prison. They finally managed to avoid another inmate guarding exits and escaped out a window from dormitory E1. On Sunday, just before noon, a large group of Hispanic inmates started to chase a group of African Americans into the yard and shouting, Kill the Blacks! The African Americans stopped at the perimeter fence near the sally port where they were ordered to lay down by law enforcement officers. The officers leveled their weapons at the onrushing group of Hispanic inmates. At this, the Hispanic inmates were given five minutes within which to retreat or be fired upon. The group of would-be assassins retreated, and the fence was cut to isolate the African Americans in an area between the two fences. 34 hours after the taking of Dormitory E2, Inmates got another televised conference they had been persistently demanding. Just after noon Sunday, two cameramen from Albuquerque set up an interview with inmate negotiators in an office in the gatehouse. The inmates were concerned about retribution by officers after the riot, and they complained about harassment from the staff. The inmates were assured that they would be transferred out of state once the inmates released the last of the hostages. The negotiations in front were abruptly disrupted when an unauthorized National Guard helicopter flew over carrying a state policeman who had been surveying the inmate conflict near the recreation area. The helicopter excited and angered the apprehensive inmates who pulled the last two remaining hostages back inside the prison walls. When the helicopter got an urgent message to get away, it did so immediately. When the inmates calmed down, negotiations resumed. Once again, the inmate negotiators received assurances that they would be transferred from the prison on Monday. Finally, at 1.26 p.m., the inmates released the last two remaining hostages. At approximately the same time, 50 inmates escaped from the prison, leaving only 50 inside. The riot was now over. In 36 hours, over 200 inmates were injured and 33 lost their lives. 24 were Hispanic, 7 were white, 1 was African American, and 1 was Native American. Much of the prison was burned or flooded. Only a few of the inmates were convicted of crimes that occurred during the riot. Most of the murders, rapes, and beatings went unpunished. Yet it did bring about some prison reform. Abuse by guards significantly decreased. It helped implement a classification system for housing inmates, whereby high-risk inmates were segregated more properly from low-risk inmates. Also, the prison ramped up protection against further riots by reinforcing procedures and walls of protection between inmate and correctional officers. That's it. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will look at the Dixie Mafia in Northeast Georgia and the assassination of District Attorney Floyd Horde in 1967.